Welcome to Spirit Goddess, the place we dive into all realms of spirituality, such as the paranormal, spiritual practices, conspiracies, and breaking down CIA documents on the topics. I'm May. And I'm Joelle. Let's dive in. Welcome back. Welcome back and a happy Friday. (laughs) Welcome back to another CIA episode. It's been a while since we've actually sat down and broke down some declassified CIA documents. Uh huh. The last few episodes, we've been very vulnerable Mm -hmm. in our soft girl eras. (laughs) And it was good while it lasted yeah but now we're in research mode oh yeah we're ready for the juicy stuff especially Mm -hmm. because we've had some really weird dreams lately Mm -hmm. and some really weird experiences and i like as we were looking at possible documents to uncover and we just had a lot of weird realizations about things that are real like i don't know how to word it but we've just had some really weird experiences and it prompted us to look even further into some documents. So this episode is going to be divided into two segments. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be breaking down the first half of this document in this episode. The document's going to be split up into two episodes. But the second half of this one is going to be us talking about those crazy dreams, those crazy experiences that we've had. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be really interesting to listen to. Yeah. And basically these crazy stories and dreams and all of that prompted this episode. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about that at the very end. Uh huh. Because we have a lot of new listeners, welcome, welcome. We're so happy to have you and all of our loyal listeners. We love you all, of course. Mm. But for those who are new and have not listened to our previous CIA Secrets series episodes, please go listen to those first. We're going to be talking about lots of different concepts. We're going to be referring to past episodes as well for some of the things that are mentioned. And also, it's just really, really cool information. And we, by pure luck, have picked really good documents to kind of follow each other to build on certain things yeah um so definitely listen to the cia secrets series from beginning to now to really kind of understand the things we're going to be referring to in Mm -hmm. this episode so today we're going to be talking about the coordinate remote viewing stages one to six and beyond dated february 1985 This was written by a project officer whose name is literally scratched off. Uh, Yeah. And we also, with all other documents, we've been able to see who the document was written for, Mm -hmm. whether it was like Minister of Defense or some type of military officer. We don't know. It's blacked out. So we don't know who it was written for who it was written by all we know is that this person was the project officer for what they're writing about thou who shall not be named (laughs) (laughs) so to kind of dive into this document i'm gonna read off the introduction that's written here because i feel like that's gonna explain it a lot better than i could in my own words so let's go the purpose of this document is to provide an overview of coordinate remote viewing crv training stages one through six CRV is a process by which a person is capable of perceiving information concerning a site remote from him in location and or time, given only the geographic coordinates of that location. It will provide the basics that have been learned in the past three years of training. One cannot expect to learn RV simply by reading this document. CRV must be learned by doing. CRV has been divided into discrete achievable levels called stages. 
Training is presented in these stages. Each stage is a natural progression, building on the information received from the previous stage. These stages are tutored in order with presentation of theory, followed by a series of practical exercises taking a few weeks per stage. To learn to remote view, the trainee must do practical exercises in each stage until a level of proficiency is reached. Only then can he proceed to the subsequent stage. So basically this document is going to be talking about stages of training to do remote viewing. So Mm. for those who have listened to our CIA series, the first episode we ever did for CIA secrets was about remote viewing and they did a lot of exercises through it. It was called the gateway experience for them where Mm. they were learning to astral project. This is similar to that, but they're using other methods that are not necessarily astral projecting. Yeah. It's pretty crazy because they're basically saying that they're just giving these people coordinates Mm -hmm. and the coordinates to a location and these people are just going Uh, and remote viewing this area Uh or this location based off of straight just numbers. Yeah, and not even just the location now in the present, this location, but like 1800s, 1900s, like just in the past, in the future, in the present, all sorts of things. And as we go through the stages of what these like training exercises were, um, you're going to see that they kind of built this entire process off of intuition. Yeah. Which is super, super cool. They don't call it intuition. They call it yeah. feeling. Yeah. Feeling, emotions. But uh, yeah, it is intuition. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like building that psychic power within you to gain access to other information that's not in front of you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like they kind of said in the beginning of the introduction, this is a skill that probably everybody can do, uh-huh. but it just takes training yeah and same thing for the gateway experience from our first cia episode they said the same thing you know this is something that everybody can learn they Mm -hmm. were using techniques um through hypnosis Mm -hmm. for most of it but even then it's something that it is a skill to do and in the right environment in the right setting with the right training it's something that everybody has the ability to do Mm -hmm. it's just fucking wild (laughs) So to continue on this intro, it goes on to say, the key to the lower stages of the remote viewing process is the recognition that the major problem in attempts to remote view is the desire to visualize the site. When the viewer attempts to visualize the site, he usually stimulates memory and imagination. As the viewer becomes aware of the first few data bits, there appears to be a largely spontaneous and undisciplined attempt to extrapolate and fill in the blanks, quote, quote. This is presumably driven by a need to resolve the ambiguity associated with the fragmentary nature of the emerging perception. The result is a premature internal analysis and interpretation on the part of the remote viewer. This is called analytical overlay slash AOL. So this would be my problem 100% mm. if somebody was trying to give me little bits and pieces, little crumbs of a location. My imagination would run wild trying yeah. to picture everything, trying to imagine what the site looks like. But that's not the point of the exercise because otherwise, kind of like they say, you're using your imagination and your own memory of locations that you've seen to try and build what this place looks like, but it's not accurate. So you're creating mental blockages and you're fogging what the actual site is Mm -hmm. that 
you need to be visiting or seeing or intuitively tapping into. Yeah. And that's 100% something that I would do, especially because I read a lot of books. So anybody (laughs) tells me one thing, this castle on the hill with greenery around it, I imagine that full, full, full on. Uh, So that would definitely be, and this is literally the lower stages. This is like stage one of the exercise. (laughs) I don't know how far I'd make it in this, especially in this way, like this Uh type of remote viewing exercises. It's really hard because I think that's just an automatic that all of our brains Mm -hmm. would start doing is creating this overlay based off of our imagination and memory. Uh And what they're trying to do is completely disconnect that Uh so that they can get real accurate yeah Yeah. so you'd have to learn how to shut off your imagination yeah and basically your subconscious yeah but stay aware enough so that you can have accurate data of this location that you're remotely viewing Mm -hmm. and that's something like if we're just talking about intuition in general I feel like that's a big thing that um a lot of people struggle with when they're first tapping into their intuition is what's coming from an external source what am I thinking of that's not me making Mm. it up and what is actually intuition which is kind of exactly what they're trying to do is intuitively intuitively know what the real facts are without Mm -hmm. making it up yourself which is it's a hard divide Mm -hmm. especially if you're just learning and even if you are extremely intuitive it's still hard to differentiate sometimes and the hard part too is as soon as you start questioning yourself that's oh yeah you're done you're done because then you cannot trust your intuition and they kind of talk about this in the document as soon as you have thoughts about something you're basically creating an overlay that will block your intuition Uh, yeah oh that's so tough so then it continues on to say, upon receiving the stimulus or coordinates, the psychic signal reaches the threshold of awareness, the point where the signal begins to be perceptible. When the signal impacts on this threshold, it is perceived by the viewer momentarily. As the signal fades away, the viewer, using the first few data bits received from the initial signal, draws on memory or imagination to create a picture, quote, quote, of the site. This picture is created from too few data bits and consequently bears little resemblance to the actual site. This is called fill-in-the-blanks overlays. Success in handling this complex process requires the viewer to grab incoming data bits while simultaneously attempting to control the overlays. Stage one and stage two training is designed to deal with this problem. So later on, like in stage one and stage two, they talk about how these signals or these stimulus that they were giving uh, the participants was either, you know, a word, either numeral coordinates Mm -hmm. and even time. So time frames, even down to the minute. And so when they would receive the stimulus, it's really then that they say the psychic signal reaches awareness where they kind of get this surge of input, I guess, mm. where the intuition kicks in and they get like a, a hit from it, basically. Mm. And they try and stay in that wave before the participant starts to kind of imagine things, before yeah. they start to create ideas in their head. They really, really focus on just the little hits that they get. And then within those little hits, they kind of fill in the blanks 
as they go uh-huh. and the participant has to try to not fill in the blanks themselves yeah so they have to try to let's say for example let's say the stimulus is they're trying to get me to picture a house uh-huh. and then I get plant and then I get lamp I have to try not picture that the plant and the lamp are next to each other uh-huh. and I have to try and not picture or imagine that they're even in the same room and it's just like getting little cues here and there but you can't build your own ideas off of it because then it's creating these blank overlays that are kind of fogging the actual vision and the actual information you're getting Uh so it's a little complicated I hope that little example kind of explained it or maybe you understood it perfectly from the document itself Uh, but that's kind of the idea of the very early stages of what they're doing is just trying to get those little intuitive hits here and there to try and connect or tap into Mm. the coordinate or whatever they're trying to get the participant to see. Mm -hmm. Then it goes on to say, observation of the training program indicates that remote viewing is a learnable skill. After being exposed to the basic concepts of the training program, the viewer typically exhibits a few sessions of very high quality. This is known as the first time effect. This quality cannot be maintained and is followed by dropping to a very low level of performance. At this point, learning begins. As learning takes place, the session quality improves. Improvement continues until a plateau is reached. When this plateau is maintained for five to six consecutive sessions, it is time to commence training in the next stage. As indicated earlier, the CRV training procedure is structured to proceed through a series of stages hypothesized to correspond to stages of increased contact with the site. These stages are tutored in order with presentation of theory followed by a series of practical exercises taking a few weeks per stage. The viewer progresses through the stages, concentrating only on the elements to be mastered in each stage before proceeding to the next. The trainee should not be given information on stages beyond the specific stage in which he's being trained. This would challenge the trainee to progress too rapidly. With a thorough understanding of each stage, progress into successive stages becomes very difficult. Mm -hmm. And this is true for a lot of things in life, I feel. Mm -hmm. If you are thinking too far ahead in what you want to succeed in in the future, it's very, very hard for you to succeed now because you're not focusing on what needs to be achieved right now and you're Mm. only focused on the future. And that goes for like literally any goal that you could have in life. But that same theory, I guess, is applied to this type of training. So if you were a participant, you would only know about the current stage that you're in Mm. and you would have no information on what the next stage is because if you did, you'd try and get to that next stage quickly, yeah, subconsciously. That and also just the fact that they have to seep through their own overlays yeah. created by their minds. I think knowing what's coming next. Oh, you would You would so probably visualize overlays. or imagine a bunch of things yeah. that would block you from go moving uh-huh. on to the next stage, basically. Before we actually go into the stages individually, I mean, the beginning stages are just very like intuitive hits, maybe seeing some things Mm. but then as you go on the stages are physically being able to manipulate the site so if I were to know that future stages were to manipulate stuff 
even very early on, I would probably see, oh, I'm super advanced. I can do this. And then it would completely damage the progress of the trial. Yeah. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but (laughs) at the very end, they talk about time manipulation, which if you were to know in the early stages that you could possibly manipulate time and space. Who's to say that you wouldn't try and fuck shit up accidentally? And if you play with time and space, you're playing with the past and the future that exists in this current dimension, therefore possibly completely destroying yeah everything and you not knowing how to control it properly Mm. is exactly why they don't want you to know what's coming ahead and you only focus on what you need to know now and it's crazy to think that we're talking about this and that is a real thing that exists yeah like this it's so crazy because there's so many things in these documents that we read that Yes, it is theories and there is exercises, but then you always get to one line in the document where it's like, this is proven and the most perfected, like uh, whatever experiment uh-huh. these people have done. And then you're like, holy fuck, like they, they're not just experimenting with it. They perfected it. Yeah. Like they actually do this. Scary stuff. It is. But it's really fucking cool yeah. though. <laughs> <laughs> we're just too curious. Yeah. <laughs> And now we're getting into the six different stages that these trainees have to go through to basically remote view. Yeah. Yeah. And become an expert at this. (laughs) So in developing this CRV training program, it was found that an experienced viewer applying the proper techniques tends to contact the site in sequential stages. So stage one is called major gestalt. I think that's how you say that. Don't come for me. I think so. So in stage one, the viewer is trained to provide a quick reaction response to the reading of geographic coordinates by the interviewer. The coordinates are expressed in degrees, minutes, and seconds when possible. The response takes the form of an immediate primitive squiggle on paper. This squiggle is known as an ideogram. The ideogram captures the overall feeling slash motion of the gestalt of the site. For example, fluid slash wavy for water. This response is kinesthetic and not visual. In stage one, visual images are noted and labeled as AOL, which is analytical overlays. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in stage one, it's really just those quick intuitive hits. Mm -hmm. And in the second episode for this document, we're going to be breaking down each stage further Mm -hmm. to show really like what kind of hits were they getting what kind of squiggles were they doing what were they actually looking for in these stages Mm -hmm. so that's going to be in the second episode we're just going to briefly go over the stages because there's a whole lot more to talk about yeah (laughs) so we have to break it up yeah so basically they're looking for quick responses um this is just my theory because the quick response like we said is more an intuitive hit if they were to think about it and really sit there their imagination (laughs) would start and then the overlays that they're basically filling in the blanks would start and that's not what they need yeah exactly so then stage two is called sensory contact In stage two, the viewer is trained to become sensitive to sensations associated with the sight. These sensations concern sounds, smells, tastes, textures, temperatures, and energies at the sight. Although colors are perceivable, stage two signals are essentially non-visual in nature. As in stage one, visual images are noted and declared as AOL. 
Yeah. So even colors is imagination at that point. Mm-hmm. They need pure sensory. Yeah. What you're feeling, what you're tasting. Is what it cold? Yeah. Is it hot? Yeah. And then stage three is called dimension, motion, and mobility. In stages one and two, data typically appear to emerge as fragmented data bits. In stage three, we observe the emergence of broader concept of the site. With stage one and two data forming a foundation, more detailed data and dimensional aspects such as length, height, and distances begin to appear. This increased contact is known as a widening of the aperture. At this point, contact with the site appears sufficiently strengthened that the viewer begins to have an overall appreciation of the site as a whole. This is known as an aesthetic impact. After the viewer experiences an aesthetic impact, the urge to draw the site begins. These drawings are expressed in the form of sketches, trackers, in parentheses, outlines of the general configuration of the site, and additional spontaneous ideograms. The final product of stage one through stage three training is the recognition of the overall gestalt and physical configuration of the site. It's really cool. Very complex. Mm -hmm. Stage four is called general qualitative and analytical aspects. Because of the increased site contact that occurs in stage three, in stage four, data of an analytical nature begin to emerge. Contained in stage four, data are elements that go beyond normal observational concept. The ambience of the site, such as military, religious, technical, or educational, can be expressed in stage four. Cultural factors, such as Soviet, Muslim, or Arabic, and functional indicators, such as power generation, BW research, or human research, can also be reported accurately in stage four. Stage four is therefore the point where the viewer begins to become operational. Where it says that they can identify if there's like human research and stuff. I wonder if in this technique of remote viewing, they would have been curious about, because in past documents, we Mm -hmm. know the Soviets were very, very ahead of what they were doing because I think it was... 13 years or 12 years before this document was written, they were successfully doing a whole lot more stuff Mm -hmm. with remote viewing. So I wonder if they're kind of sending their trainees back to see, okay, what experiments were they doing? Yeah. And where were they doing these human experiments? And what were these subjects able to achieve? Because they're trying to learn more. That's my theory on it. I think so too, because literally the first thing they mention is like, oh, let us know if there's there's cultural factors such as Soviets. Yeah. Like that's the, the first, first mention. <laughs> yeah. They were real curious, mm-hmm. which I understand because they were so advanced in yeah. all of this. Because I'm pretty sure in the last like big CIA breakdown that we did also in two parts where they were doing ports mm-hmm. and all of that. If I remember correctly, that was being done in like 1972. Yeah. Around that. This is and at that years point, later, if, years later, yeah. over a decade later. If I'm not mistaken, at that point too, they had already perfected psychokinesis. As oh a whole, yeah, which you'll see psychokinesis only comes later in this document, mm-hmm. and they haven't perfected it whatsoever. But it's also so interesting that there are so many different ways to achieve the same goal. Uh-huh. If the goal is 
telekinesis or psychokinesis, telepathic communication, Mm -hmm. astral projection, apports, all of that, that there's many ways to achieve that. Mm -hmm. That you could do it through hypnosis and kind of bypass a lot of the conscious and subconscious blockages. Or you could do it through training where you actually train yourself to do it. And I, in some way, feel that this method of having the participants really learn to avoid their blockages is a bit more, um, I guess, productive than having to have your participants be under hypnosis to achieve the same thing. But for me, I'm thinking in the Soviets type of Oh, it's a lot easier. It's easier. And also you're not giving the power to your actual trainees. Yes. Versus in this... In this type of document, they're training them. They will carry this training on with them. Yeah, exactly. So it's like two different things. And it's also from two different point of views. Like, Uh do you want to only give your participant limited access? Or do you want to train them to have full and bigger potential on their own? It's just really, really interesting the different ways of training that they do. And so we don't know exactly who wrote this document, but this is in the u.s Mm -hmm. that they were doing this so it just kind of puts that perspective on the scientists as well that the american scientists were more they just had different i guess concepts when it comes Mm -hmm. to training people to achieve these things and then the soviets were obviously like get on that table close your eyes we're going to hypnotize you and then tell us what you see yeah and grab what we tell you to grab yeah they're both of their approach are extremely extremely different Mm -hmm. right whenever we read documents written up by like the ussr research you can clearly tell they give no fucks they want to find whatever they want to find and they will do whatever they need to do to find those answers Mm -hmm. versus i think the united states takes a different approach because they don't know what they're doing yeah and they're just so curious that They're just not naive, but their approach is different. Yes. It's a lot less aggressive. Yeah. For sure. Because even with this, you know, they describe at different parts in the document where the stages can take different amounts of time depending Mm -hmm. on the trainee and how fast they're progressing and all that. It can take weeks for just one stage where I firmly believe that the Soviets, like if somebody was not able to achieve what needed to be achieved under hypnosis, that participant is gone. Oh, yeah gone gone next it's just a lot more aggressive Mm -hmm. and it kind of makes you wonder in a way was that aggressive approach for a purpose were they being more aggressive and quicker because they had different goals that they needed to achieve quick or they wanted Mm. to get access to something quick where the U.S. doesn't necessarily at that time have any motive behind it and they're just trying to advance research and they're doing this but maybe the ussr had other motives behind it why they wanted these techniques perfected and quick and we've theorized about this we thought that they would use it to weaponize yes which i think for me is still like my theory on why they they approach it that way is because they need it right now Uh and they want to weaponize it right now yeah and you know what's crazy is it makes me think and I had this thought a couple weeks ago about kind of um, the theory of like apports Mm -hmm. or not the theory the experiments uh, of apports and astral projection and all of that and them clearly showing that they're able to project to other locations other place and times 
I wonder if a lot of like paranormal experiences that people have is somebody projecting to another time and space. So for example, when we went to that jail, Mm -hmm. the second oldest prison in Canada, and we felt presences around us, would it be possible in a way that the presences that we felt were somebody projecting, maybe not at the current time that we were there, Mm -hmm. but that because we know from also other documents that past, present, and future all happen simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that the presence we felt was somebody that was maybe a prisoner, somebody that was projecting there mm-hmm. to see stuff, or just like all kinds of stuff, and not necessarily just the prison that we were at, but it makes me wonder like, can paranormal experiences actually just be somebody maybe in that very moment projecting hmm. and being in that room with you? But you think it's just, you know, a ghost, a spirit, but it could actually be somebody yeah. that's projecting. My, this is just my theory yeah. on this. Um, and when they talk about different dimensions in this document, mm-hmm. kind of made me think of that theory. I think that they're in another dimension somehow that looks just like And this. it kind of overlaps yes, in a way. Yes, and it yeah. overlaps in certain moments. Yeah. And they accidentally come into this one yeah and that's why sometimes we see them sometimes we don't yeah it's just so fun with this kind of research and these documents that there are so many possible theories Mm -hmm. and it's so fun to theorize on what could be true and what could not be true and it's just fun to think about that there's probably people that know what is true and what is actually happening but we just don't but it's so so cool to kind of think about these types of studies but on a bigger I don't know on a bigger platform I guess and connecting them to our some of our other theories Mm -hmm. because when we read these types of things for us it kind of confirms some of our past theories yes anyways it's just very interesting Uh, yeah hopefully you can also make your own theories Mm -hmm. and sit with those yeah and before we go off on that too long let's go back to stage five yeah (laughs) (laughs) just a little rant a little pause so stage five is called specific analytical aspects by interrogating the signal line very long Mm -hmm. so many complex bits of data are produced during stage four If during the stage four, the viewer attempts to probe or question the significance of this data, it usually results in the production of AOL. So like we said earlier, as soon as they start to think and question things, everything becomes a blur. Yeah. The analytical functions of the viewer try too hard and fill in with logical but incorrect data. In stage five, however, special techniques are used to produce the more detailed information without triggering AOL. So stage five is really overcoming the big Mm -hmm. overlays so that you can move on to other things. But definitely this stage is kind of like, okay, we need you to learn how to not trigger the overlays Mm -hmm. because stage six and the possible future stages really depend on there not being overlays. Yeah. Yeah. So stage six is called three-dimensional contact and modeling. It gets real fucking juicy from here. (laughs) So in stage six, the viewer uses various materials to produce three-dimensional representations of the site or specific elements at the site location. Materials such as clay, 
cardboard, and poster paper can be used to produce models of the specific structure at the site as well as the general configuration of the surrounding area. This construction is done with quote-unquote feeling, which we think intuition. is intuition. The use of these materials is not simply an attempt to render a more exact representation of the site than can be done verbally or by means of drawing. The kinesthetic activity appears to both quench AOL formation associated with purely cerebral processes and to act as a trigger to produce further analytical content of the site, even concerning aspects not being specifically addressed by the modeling. Mm-hmm. So then for those six stages that were really into practice, we're going to dive deep into those in the next episode in part two for this. But we are going to go over what were potential future stages. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, as they're doing all of these experiments and training, they see the potential for more. Yeah. And there obviously is potential for more. So then after that, the author of this document goes into his own personal thoughts on what could be future stages. So this guy goes on to say, this chapter deals with possible future stages. These stages are the personal thoughts of the writer. They are the product of the last three and a half years of training and work in the area of CRV. These ideas are my own. However, they were developed from many hours of thought and discussion with other people with common interests. During this training program, it has become apparent there is a natural progression or continuum to the psychic signal. This progression continues beyond remote viewing to the ability to exert one's influence over persons and things at the site. The following stages, I believe, follow this natural progression. By calling them stages, I'm not implying they are trainable. I'm merely stating they appear to fit into the natural flow of the signal. Ooh, getting juicy. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this is where the Soviets were, basically. Oh, yeah, because with, like, a ports and being able to potentially... You know, if you're able to grab things and bring them back, what's to say you can't grab a person or harm a person? And that was the fear of the U.S. in those documents is that they were going to disable, you know, military weapons Uh and that the U.S. was going to be screwed and not be able to use them because somebody astrally projected into this current time and space and disabled their machinery. It's kind of cool. <laughs> it's kind of it's scary. Cool. It's cool. But it's kind of cool. It's cool. But when you're on the U.S.'s side, <laughs> girl. And then it it's makes you scary. think, why has it not happened? Yeah. Or has it? And we just don't know. Lots of questions. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these future stages, it goes up to stage 11. So stage seven would be analytics. Analytics is the ability to make a yes-no decision without producing AOL. This also gives the viewer the ability to recognize numbers and letters. This is a further development of stages four and five. This has application in the recognition of addresses in search problems and code breaking. This stage is in the process of development by I. Swan. According to Mr. Swan, this development is proceeding well. And as we know from our first CIA document, the gateway process, that was one of the experiments is they would astrally project from one coast of the U.S. to the other to read 10 computer generated numbers Mm -hmm. on screens. And they had to relay those numbers back 
And I don't remember if I swan was part of that experiment. I don't believe so. Um, but it's cool to know that this was just a theory, but it turns out somebody is working on, on this and it's going very well. Yeah. <laughs> Stage eight was called phonetics and sonics. This too is a concept of I Swan. This was originally believed to be stage seven until he realized analytics actually preceded it. Stage eight will allow the viewer to produce phonetic slash sonic sounds, which it is hypothesized will allow the viewer to produce the name of persons, places, and things at the site. In my experience, these signals, which I've produced, have at times been very accurate. An example of this is Kariba, is quote quote Kariba, which was produced when tasked against Kariba Dam. So this is a little interesting because we did not know what Kariba Dam was. We're uh, not sure. If we're not 100% sure, but we just looked it up and it is a dam that collapsed in 1960s around 19, there. Yeah, 1958. Um, so it's interesting that maybe it's a power plant, right? It's um hydraulic uh hydraulic power plant uh, yeah yeah so it's interesting that that was maybe one of the exercises that he had to participate in very interesting so let's move on to stage nine which is telepathic signals stage nine is a follow-on to stage four's emotional impact which we will break down when we do part two, the EI column is the place the viewer discusses the quote quote feelings of the people at the site. If the viewer is in touch with a distant person's feelings, the next step would seem to be a more complete telepathic link. Stage nine would be broken into two phases. Phase one would be receiving telepathic signals from the site area. Again, this is very similar to stage four EI. Phase Two would be transmitting telepathic signals to the site area. Once we understand telepathic signals well enough to receive them, the next step would be to transmit them. Very interesting. Mm. Stage 10 would be remote action, RA. Stage 10 would be a mind over matter, also known as psychokinesis, PK. We have very little understanding of PK, but we know it exists. If stage nine is telepathic signals, which affect people, it is logical the next stage would be RA signals, which affect things. Stage 10 would be divided into three phases. Phase one would be affecting or interacting with things at the site. Phase two would be teleportations of things from the site. Teleportation is an element of PK. Once we can interact with things at the site, the next step would be to bring things back from the site. Phase three would be teleportation of things to the site. Once we can remove things from the site, we should be able to send them as well. And this, we know from past documents, is the technique that is called a ports, mm -hmm. where going to one location, being able to take an object and then also put it back in that perfect time and space. And this is where in the documents where they talk about a ports, is the port technique can also break through the time and space barrier mm -hmm. where you can go to the quote quote past and grab something from the past or grab a document that was on a table or something like that. So very, very interesting that they're now mentioning that kind of same technique. Mm -hmm. Stage 11 would be altering the dimensionality at the site. This is the most difficult stage to understand. 
Time is considered another dimension, but there may be many more. Mathematically, it is considered that there are infinite numbers of dimensions. Stage 11 would be broken into at least two phases. Phase 1 would be altering time at the site. Time could be frozen, moved forward, or moved back. The implications of this are mind-boggling. I believe this is the first stage where we could truly affect slash alter the future as well as the past and the present. Phase two, maybe by the time we reach stage 11, we will understand enough about altering dimensions to use this phase. I believe there would probably be an additional phase for each additional dimension we discover. I realize these concepts are difficult to grasp and impossible to believe, but they are a natural flow of the signal and it is for this reason I include them. Only time will tell, whatever time is. What Whoa. a juicy way to end this that paragraph. That is such a good closing line. So poetic. <laughs> it truly is. <laughs> but it's funny how he says that these are just concepts. But he also mentions that these are very natural flows of the signal, where uh-huh. it is like a natural progression. progression. Yeah. Which is true. Because looking at the other documents, in this one, he's just like, hypothetically speaking, but little does he know, the it's Soviets, already done. Yeah, and the Soviets were kind of going through those stages of telepathic, just astral projection, and then it's physically affecting stuff at the site, and then it's breaking the dimensional barrier of mm-hmm. time and space, and then it's time traveling Yeah, after that, which is just so so crazy and it's just so crazy also that this is information that we have access to yeah like i find that crazy but also this is again this is from 1985 Mm -hmm. and we are now in 2023 lord knows what they're able to do now yeah because if they're releasing this is because they don't really give a fuck about (laughs) it yeah this is the basic stuff that they don't really care about it's okay if people know about this because we're on to bigger better things yeah and it's like what the fuck are y'all yeah (laughs) It's like, this is the little dirt crumb yeah. that you were willing <laughs> to release to us. <laughs> what are they on to next? Yeah. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. So before we go on to like our crazy stories that we've had recently and kind of our dreams and our theories on have we accessed these weird dimensions? Yeah. We just want to read the conclusion really quick of this document. And also keep in mind, we're going to be getting down to the details of each stage in part two. Uh So we're going to be getting a lot more information, a lot more understanding of this training that was done Mm -hmm. and how they came to perfect it in a way after three and a half years. So before we get to episode two of this obviously we just want to read the conclusion because we think that it's really really interesting Mm -hmm. so this conclusion is from the project officer's perspective after four years of training i know that the crv training program is a usable program for instructing personnel to rv as we increase our database and the understanding we are finding the time required for training can be shortened if the instructors are a dedicated group who truly understand CRV, this program will continue to improve and expand. Future stages will continue to develop, I believe, in the general order which I presented them in the previous chapter. The future of CRV is only limited by the imagination and efforts of the people pursuing it. I believe we establish our own realities of what will and won't work. 
We once had a viewer who believed he could view, but he couldn't view different time zones. Consequently, he succeeded as a viewer but failed as a time traveler. His reality would not allow him to accomplish the same tasks as his peers simply because he didn't believe. It is imperative the personnel working in this office keep an open mind and be allowed to pursue new and sometimes radical ideas. The more radical efforts may produce the most gain in the long run. So once again, our own human concepts and beliefs basically damaging mm-hmm. this whole training. I just find it really interesting that he said that that person who didn't believe that he could time travel didn't succeed the tasks of his peers, meaning that lots of peers more than one were successfully time travelers Uh time travel proven by the cia (laughs) in case you didn't know because i'm sure we've mentioned it in past episodes but (laughs) it's just so so cool Mm -hmm. so now we're gonna get on to our crazy stories that we've just been wanting to share with you So basically, the dream that I had that kind of prompted us to want to dive into remote viewing, dimensions, Mm -hmm. and all of that again, is I was stuck in a loop for what felt like an eternity. And I told May this dream, and I'm going to explain it all. But I had told May about this dream, and I was like, this is fucking wild. Like, I can't even describe like how it felt to be in there and she looked it up little did I know it's actually a phenomenon that that happens um and we're gonna explain it afterwards but before we explain the phenomena that I experienced um (laughs) let me describe to you what this dream was like so I am somebody that lucid dreams almost every single night it's very rare that I won't become lucid this is something that I've done since I was very very small Uh, I'm just able to like jump dreams I'm able to just fully take control of everything it's super fun it is extremely fun Um, but this one really got me because I was just in a regular dream I became lucid and I wanted to wake up from it like it was just time for me to wake up so I wake up I didn't actually wake up I was still in a dream but I wake up and I'm uh, looking around and I'm so confused because I'm in my room but my room doesn't look quite exactly like it does now like in real life and I'm kind of looking around and I'm very confused because this is very, very vivid. I've never had a dream that was so vivid to the point where I was actually questioning, am I lucid or am I actually awake? Because I knew that it was off. Something was off about my room. So I'm like walking out of my room and I'm looking like into the hallway, into the kitchen, into the living room. And I'm very, very confused. And then I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is a dream. It has to be. This is so odd. So then I force myself to wake up. So then I wake up. I'm still in a dream, okay? But I wake up and then I look around and okay, my my room looks pretty much the same. I'm like, oh, I must be finally awake because this is like the middle of the night. It's literally, I check my phone. It's like five in the morning or something or I think it was even earlier than that. But I check my phone. I'm like, okay, perfect. It's fine. I wake up. I open my bedroom door. My hallway is not the same. It is not the way that it looks like in real life. So then I'm like, 
shit, I did it again. I'm like, I'm still in a dream. This is so odd. So I'm like, okay, this is starting to get a little weird. Like I, I've literally tried to wake myself up twice now where I usually have no issue with that. And what the fuck am I doing here? This is very strange. So then I kind of walk back to my room and I lay back in my bed and I'm like, all right, let's try this again. Let's wake up. I wake up. I'm still in a dream, but I wake up and my books are in the wrong spot on my bookshelf. And I notice this and I'm very, very confused at this point. And now I'm getting a little bit scared because I'm like, oh my God, like I actually cannot wake up, but I'm fully lucid. So then I run out of my room and I live with my brother. So I'm like, Ryan, 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 are you here? And he's in his room. And so I barge into his room and I'm like, oh my God, like I can't wake up. Like, this is not real. This is my dream. Like, I don't know what to do. I've tried to wake up three times. Like, it's it's not working. And he's looking at me. He's like, oh, my God, like, calm down, calm down. But this is so vivid that this is like a real conversation with my brother. This mm-hmm. is not a dream thing. This is exactly the way that I see it in real life. And I'm beginning to panic now. And so I kind of force myself to kind of wake up again. I wake up. Same thing. I'm still in a dream, but I wake up. And my plant is in the wrong spot. And it's just these little, little, little things that because I am so lucid and so vivid that I notice. I'm like, my plant is not there. Like that plant is at the top of my bed, not across from my bed. And at this point, I'm, I'm very scared. And at this point, I'm genuinely thinking, is my actual body in a coma? And I like at that point, this is a, this is a, a weekday. So I, in this dream, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, May is going to come to pick me up and she's not going to know that I'm awake, but my body's asleep and I'm probably in a coma. The door's locked. She's not going to be able to come in. She's going to have to call somebody and say, oh my God, what's wrong with Joelle? Like she's not outside. She's usually ready. And I'm like, oh my God, something happened to my body and I can't get back to it. Like something is actually go- wrong. And this is a time like this was actually the part that scared me the most is because I then was so desperate to try and reconnect with my body that trigger warning of self-harm in a way. I came to the kitchen and I grabbed a kitchen knife and I started cutting my fingers and it felt exactly like it would in real life. It was painful. It was gross. I could see my blood dripping onto my hand, onto the ground, and I'm trying to reconnect to my body. I'm like, I can feel this. Like, this is my real body. This is something real that's happening. And then finally I wake up. I'm still in a dream, but I wake up again. And now I'm like, I'm panicking. I'm like screaming and everything. And then finally it comes to the point where I wake up. Like this happened like at least like five times where I woke up, but I was still in a dream. And finally I wake up and I'm suspicious as fuck Mm -hmm. because it's slightly different my books are all in the right place. My plants are all in the right place. I walk out of my room. It's still like five or so in the morning. Every time I checked my phone in these dreams, it was the same time. I check my phone. It is that time. It's dark. There's nobody here. I'm walking into my kitchen, into my living room. I'm looking at every detail. Everything is perfect, but I still think that I'm in a dream. And this is where it fucked with me mentally because at this point, I was questioning very heavily, am I in a dream or is this real? And I'm scared to cut my fingers again because I'm not 100% sure. And if this is real, that's going to fucking hurt. And also it's going to be like, I'm going to have scars on my fingers. I'm like, it's going to hurt just as much as it hurt the other time, but it's actually going to be real. 
And I stayed awake for about an hour, just sitting in my room, watching the walls, listening to everything, because I didn't know if I was in a dream or not. And then the morning comes, I get ready for work, I go to work, I tell May about this. And ever since then, every time that I wake up, I'm very, very, not confused, Mm -hmm. but I'm very suspicious if I'm actually awake or not and when I finally like did like wake myself up and it was true I was very confused as to like does this mean I'm in a different reality now Mm -hmm. like am I still in the same body like did something happen like it was very very strange and then May looked it up and turns out this is a phenomenon where you become too aware you become too lucid in the stage of REM sleep that you should not be. Yeah. Therefore, you create a lucid dream loop where you're basically waking up. You could wake up once. You can wake up twice. You can wake up up to literally an infinity amount of time. Yeah. Until your actual body gets out of that stage and then you can wake up. But you're basically stuck in this loop. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about. The not the dangers, but the scary parts of lucid dreaming yeah such as this because I had never experienced that before I didn't know what it was and I was genuinely thinking that there was something wrong with my actual physical body I thought I was in a coma or Uh fell into a coma into my sleep and now I'm stuck in the dream world where I can't leave yeah Uh, And it was getting very traumatic to the point of like having to cut my fingers with a knife because I know that I'm in a dream and I don't know where I am. I don't know why I'm not waking up because I've never had issues waking Mm -hmm. up before. And it was extremely traumatic. Yeah. It was shocking because I also didn't know about this phenomenon. And after knowing about it, if I ever do get stuck in that loop again, now I'm going to be aware. Yeah of it but you can't get out of it I can't get out that's gonna be the scary part is kind of just waiting yeah in that dream sitting on the end of my bed I'll probably read a book or something while I'm there like (laughs) I don't know watch some YouTube videos or something but like it was very very odd Uh and it's just like my brain was playing tricks on me that I was not prepared to experience Mm -hmm. it was super odd so that was like my dream that prompted wanting to kind of dive in deeper to like other dimensions lucid dreaming Mm -hmm. the kind of projection and all of that Mm -hmm. because that was really scary so if you have ever experienced that before uh, I fucking feel you on that that is scary Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have not experienced that before don't worry you probably won't if you are not somebody that lucid dreams a lot you probably won't experience that so don't be scared of that and if um, you do, at least you know now. Yeah, if you do experience loop. that, yeah, exactly. And you'll you know. And you'll your body is gonna naturally wake up. Yeah. When it gets so just out hang out, just chill. Yeah. Just wait enjoy it out. Enjoy your lucid dream. Yeah. Enjoy it. Just relax and kind of wait until your body wakes up. But mm. like it was definitely one of the less visually traumatic dreams I've ever had I've had very very traumatic dreams obviously of things happening and we're gonna talk about like your dreams that have had Mm. those aspects but that was definitely the most like it it makes me think of horror movies versus psychological thrillers yes psychological thrillers definitely have more of an effect and that dream was a fucking like psychosis because the thing that's that's also hard about dreams is that your actual brain has a very very hard time 
figuring out the difference between reality mm-hmm. and dreams. Yes. So already your brain is confused. Yeah. So those are like the scary parts, I guess, of lucid dreaming. And same thing with astral projecting. I was practicing this every single night yeah. for probably close to two months. And yes, a lot of shit was happening in my life. Yes, I was like really not deep into drugs, but I was getting high every single night. So I think that didn't help. Mm-hmm. But the practicing astral projecting and completely taking my awareness out of my body, I think basically pushed me over the edge of derealization. Mm-hmm. And that was extremely hard to get back to because I basically was not aware of my physical body for probably close to two months yeah because you were trying to disconnect so hard and we had talked about it when you had mentioned that it's like yeah subconsciously you're trying so hard to achieve something that your subconscious is probably working on that during the day as well yeah because in the back of your head that's what you're trying to achieve so Mm -hmm. during your actual regular daily life you are disconnecting from your body without willingly trying to Uh uh-huh scariest thing Mm -hmm. ever yeah because it really felt probably like you felt in the first time waking up of you don't know if you're actually in a dream or in this current reality but you are feeling like that 24 Mm -hmm. 7 and even people like touching my skin felt different pain felt different i didn't feel the pain as much i felt like my whole skin was actually numb so Mm. you could pinch me and i wouldn't really feel it very very bizarre but those are like the scary yeah scary parts i guess of lucid dreaming and astral projecting is there's Mm -hmm. so many weird phenomenons that we're not aware of and our brain is so much more powerful than us that we actually don't know when these things could happen yeah oh which is scary same thing with vivid dreams once again your brain has a hard time telling the difference between reality and a dream so when you experience a vivid dream you actually feel Mm -hmm. every single thing that you felt in that dream Mm -hmm. because we've talked about it both of us having very vivid dreams of getting killed Mm -hmm. and getting shot Mm -hmm. and getting stabbed and knowing exactly what it feels like Mm -hmm. to be shot and to be stabbed and the amount of pain and that gross feeling it's a weird experience Mm -hmm. it's just so strange to me because obviously it's not an experience I've ever had yeah in my real life I've never been shot and I've never been stabbed in real life but my brain is somehow able to create the sensation that is more than real yes it's so odd and that also brings us to some of our theories is the dream realm a separate dimension that we all go to where Mm -hmm. things happen and there's also this theories of are the dream realms just other versions of yourself in the multiverse and you're just tapping into that version of yourself so if you're having a dream of you know you in school when you're not in school then maybe you're seeing and living what another version of you lived. Mm -hmm. And it's like tapping into these other possibilities of, you know, it's the multiverse theory in the sense of every little decision that you make creates an alternate path. Yeah. Creates an alternate future. 
with every small decision. So it's like, are you tapping into a version of you that's, that decided to go back to school for this and you're kind of experiencing it, but you're perceiving it differently because yeah. you don't know that whole story, but it's just super odd. Yeah, very, very odd. Long story short, a lot of different dimensions of mine. I'm being chased and I'm being killed in every single one of them. So I guess a lot of people hate me in these other dimensions. You know what that makes me think of is um, not that it's necessarily a good thing, but it's like <laughs> it's um, go ahead in uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, the way that they say Evelyn and all other dimensions like got murdered. Yeah, it's insane. It's and very what's, odd. What's weird? It's it's a weekly occurrence of mine. Yeah, dreams are so strange in mm -hmm. so many ways and I would if I had to go back to school for one thing and if I could afford going back to school for one thing <laughs> it would probably be to do a full analysis on exactly like all of these topics yeah. that we read about psychology. with the CIA yeah <laughs> psychology. psychology but also niches with yeah. dreams and parapsychology and the power of belief and mm -hmm. like a whole lot of things I would want to kind of discover that and be in that field on my own because I have so many questions. Honestly, go to Russia because they have a really fucking good parapsychology oh, program. Oh, they do. <laughs> Study under uh, the classes of Sergeyev and mm -hmm. all the scientists that are in these documents. I'm sure all of their books and all of their everything. Mm -hmm. That's why they were there. so advanced in these types of oh, documents of because they were yeah leading the way for parapsychology yeah it is so interesting uh -huh. so if ever you're having crazy dreams kind of like the one where i had where you're stuck in a loop if it's something similar something completely different actually look it up yeah because i thought that it was just a weird fucked up type of nightmare but turns out it's actually a phenomena mm -hmm. that is kind of proven yeah that it's that rem sleep being too lucid and not being able to wake up it kind of just proves that there are a lot of things out there that we just don't know about. Mm -hmm. So if you're experiencing something or going through something or having weird dreams about something, look it up because yeah. you don't actually know how much information they have on this until you search for it because mm -hmm. they actually know a whole lot about a lot of things. Yeah. And if you're curious, if you die in your dream, will you <laughs> die in real life? Don't worry. We've proven that theory. It doesn't <laughs> exist. We've died too many times in our dreams. Oh my and God. we came back every single one. So yeah. don't be scared of that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So in this part one, we did an introduction on this whole document and really introduced every single topic in the stages. In the part two, we're going to dive in even deeper and go into details about every single stage and all the juicy, juicy experiments that they did. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned for that. Yes, we hope you enjoyed this week's episode and we will see you soon. Bye! Bye! Thank you for listening to this week's episode. You can follow along the Spirit Goddess journey on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Spirit Goddess Podcast. We're happy to have you on this journey with us. See you next time.